Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. All right. Britt Hartley, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Bill? I am doing so well. Life is good. Life is good on your end. Yeah, I so last week I did some solo content and I talked about the four existential fears. And because we didn't do this one together, I was curious. Um, I actually got a fair amount of positive response on that podcast. It's a place that people go to after a faith transition that's not really talked about. But the four fears were fear of death, fear of isolation, fear of meaninglessness, and fear of freedom, like having to build your own life. So I'm curious of those fears, which one do you think that you have or are like, which one is yours that was the hardest? Ooh. Okay. Name those so, again. So Cause I got stuck death? on death. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I know you have, I know you have one with death. So I it's do. fear of death. Yeah. Often it actually goes in order for people. So often it's fear of death first and then it's fear of freedom, which is okay. I'm going to die. So I got to make my own life. And Doesn't that's really scary because there's scare like, me at all. no, nope. okay. And then it's like, if I'm living my own life, I'm really going to be isolated. Like nobody else is going to know perfectly what it's like to be me. And there's some loneliness involved. Mm, and then bit. after that, the, the last one, the one that I got stuck on for a couple of years was like meaninglessness. Yeah. Fear that doesn't bother me either. Fear that nothing. So the, so so the second, yeah. So the second and fourth one I get, I have no attachment to it all. The third one, a little bit, mm. but death, uh, death overwhelms me all the time. And part of it goes with that. Um, the, the isolation part where when I think about death, I think about this idea that this unique consciousness, the things that I've learned, the books that I've read behind me here, the, the information that's in my head, the information's out there. Like I walk into a library and I look at a library and I go like, there's so much information. If only I could absorb all that. So when I die, that unique awareness and database is gone. And that that bothers me. But the act of dying scares the hell out of me. Mm. Yeah, death was my easiest one. Like, I got through that, like, mm. no problem. Gonna mm. die, peace out. Like, no problem. The only the only regret I have with death is like I'm sad I won't get to see how the story ends. Like, how does Mormonism end? How does how does humanity end? And, and that would be does. the only thing I'd want to stick stick around for. I want to know how the story ends, and I won't be able to. Yeah, it, when it comes to Mormonism, it it does end at some point. <laughs> there, yeah. But there, there is a moment. There's a moment where the universe ends. There's a moment yeah. where all life on planet earth ends. There's a point where planet earth ends. Like, like yeah. those are all real things sometime in the future. I do wish I could see the end of this story that I'm a part of, you know, yeah. how that story ends. But anyway, it was a super interesting episode. And uh, if you missed it last week, I really encourage everyone to go back and listen to it. But we have a super amazing guest today. 
Um, Bill and I have said multiple times on this podcast, why hasn't anyone um, put together a system on like how to do this? Like, how do we do this? How do we structure our family life and restructure our life and have a spiritual component to our life? And someone, this person, this amazing man, um, put together the best system that I've seen to really have a healthy spiritual family life um, kind of post-faith transition or, you know, with a more secular approach. And so we're super excited to pick his brain today. So we'll bring on here John Ogden. Hey, John. Hello. All right, you're How's muted. There you are. Good. How are you? How are you? Great. Thanks. Good, good. Glad to, glad to have this time with you, my friend. You you have been a voice in my ear here and there for several years. And so I'm really appreciative of your perspective. You are the, you're the Buddhist version of me. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean that you come across so much more calming and um, fair, where I can sometimes be too aggressive and too sure that I'm right. And I just appreciate your voice in the space. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. So John, so John, you're the co-founder of upliftkids.org, which we'll be linking to and talking about today. The author of the book, When Mormons Doubt. Um, he worked as a university instructor, an instructional designer, and a writer at tech companies. And he lives with his spouse and two kids in Provo. And um, I've run into John in the past. We've done sunstone panels together. Bill and John have run into each other with Thrive. And we're just super um, impressed with all this, all the stuff that you're doing in this kind of post-religious space that everybody's trying to figure out. Lots to figure out. Lots to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I'm curious, you know, we're going to get in here into this uh, incredible program and really it's an entity that's doing great work, but I'm, I'm curious kind of, if we back up before that, what is, what is some of the early sprinklings of things going on in your mind and in your world that, that led to you kind of, I don't know, starting to head that direction towards creating this? Yeah, it was almost the first question. It might've been the first question I had when I kind of realized that the dominant narrative of the LDS church isn't true. And it was, the question is like, what do I do for my kids? And so that was like 2013. And so I realized that I just realized um, how difficult that question is to answer and have been asking that question since. And so leading up to this, I was part of launching Oasis in like around 2015, 2016 here in Provo. And so I was part of that team that was something that was a secular humanist group uh, that John Dillon brought in from Houston and Kansas. And it, there were a number of them here in Utah. And so that was, that was one area uh, writing the book. One more missed out was one move um, be, becoming finding lower lights about a year, maybe even just six months after uh, the Oasis thing was another. And so it's really been on my mind very consistently ever since um, my initial faith crisis. I, I really get that all the time too. When I talk to people who 
um, have made some kind of faith transition is that they'll say something like, you know, I've got a sense of my own values and my own spirituality, but I have kids and I have teens and I don't know how to like transfer that to them. Mm -hmm. And it was this big question that like, even people who have done things like, like Bill and I were just talking about Elaine de Baton has this thing called school mm -hmm. of life. And he's trying to build this kind of secular spirituality. And there's like the waking up app with Sam Harris. There's all these other things, but none of them were doing anything for kids. Yeah. And so I really, and so whenever I get that question, I always refer them to you and your program because mm -hmm. you really tackled like this question that no one had really an answer for at the time. Um, and so I'm, I'm just super interested in how that, how that all came together. Yeah. So more directly related to Uplift, we, a group of us met at uh, Spectra, which is a program that Lower Lights puts on. That's a mindfulness group from Thomas McConkey. And it's a nine, Spectra is a nine month program that we meet four times over the course of nine months in outside of Portland, Oregon. And so four of us started asking this question. We were noticing the exact same thing that you're pointing to, Britt, which is that like, okay, there's School of Life, there's um, Laura Lights, uh, there's a bunch of waking up, you know, a bunch of different things that are happening in this general space, but there's like not, nothing that we could see either for kids. And so we were wondering like, okay, we're learning all these principles here and experiencing, having all these experiences at Laura Lights, but we're not doing it with our families. We're not doing it with our kids. And so could we open up a space that is for all ages and explore some of these questions together in a way that merges or integrates science and spirituality and ancient wisdom? And so that is really kind of the, the core direction that we've headed in. And we started a prototype with six families, ran through a bunch of tests like does this work? Are you looking for this? You know, and went, uh, took a bunch of our learnings, reiterated, and then did another prototype with 36 families, did the same thing, like reiterated, changed a ton of stuff, and then did a soft lunch uh, early last year. And we just continued to like add to the lesson library and curriculum and iterate and iterate and iterate. And that kind of brings us to the past few months where we've said, okay, I think we have a really solid foundation and now we're interested in like letting people know that it exists. Yeah. I, I got to say, and we'll get into, I'm sure, parts of the website and things that are going on. Uh, I was really deeply impressed with your lesson curriculum. Mm, um, but I, yeah. And I want to touch on, I realize that you're not the only person who's putting content into that, putting mm -hmm. thoughts and ideas and wisdom into that. Yep. But I want to, I want to get a feel from you in your personal life. Where are you finding your wisdom at? Are you, you know, is it, is it podcasts? Is it books? Is it just contemplation and meditation? Is it, uh, I, I don't know. I, I want to know where John Ogden gets uh, his ideas from. Um, one book, I actually brought one book because I think I might mention it. I thought I might mention it is this book, The World's Wisdom um, by Philip Novak. And it's, it's probably the book that I return to the most. Um, it's just kind of like a greatest hits of the wisdom traditions. And so I, I go to it again and again and again and just reread it. Um, then other wisdom texts, some of which are cited in there, um, likely, and I know there are ones that you've talked about in this podcast before, um, the Tao Te Ching, the Dhammapada, um, the Bhagavad Gita, um, the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, you know, and various Stoic authors. And so it's really 
uh, I, I spent a lot of time in like the best of the the world's wisdom traditions and just kind of mining them and then realizing like, okay, I've read this text a couple of times, but it still hasn't sunk into me. And so like going back to it again and then going back to it again. And so that's where I find a lot of spiritual strength. I also um, do meditation and uh, mindfulness through the Waking Up podcast, Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast, as well as Lower Lights. So those are a few places that I I um, get spiritual nourishment from. Another is there's a there's a sangha here in Provo that I try to make it to as much as I can. Sometimes our Sundays get more hectic than uh, we we want them to uh, as a family, but I try to always go to that sangha when I can, uh, called Awakening Valley Sangha. So that's another one. Um, and then in addition to the lower lights community. Mm. So covered uh, a lot there, but that's no, no, that's great. I'm already, I'm already, yeah. while you're talking, I'm already on Amazon trying to order the wisdom book that you mentioned. Oh, good. So. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to, we're going to have to read it and I haven't read it either. So we'll read it and review it bill okay. for a future podcast. Love it. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. So let's dive in a little bit. Um, Let's dive into, before we get into like the seven points of your approach in, in how you've put together this program, mm -hmm. just kind of tell us, um, you're kind of defining this space that Bill and I have talked about before, and there's often dual words used, right? So it's not just spirituality, <laughs> it's spiritual humanism, or it's rational mysticism, or it's mm -hmm. spiritual atheism. It's always these kind of dual words, because you're trying to define a space that sometimes feels really separate, right? Yeah. Or really, um, you know, there's dogma coming from everywhere and you're trying to make this little space. And so what do you mean when you say that you're kind of a spiritual humanist? What does that mean to you? Uh, it means that uh, humanism, the humanist aspect of that is to say that all human beings are equally valuable. So you can be from anywhere um, or have any, any demographic, uh, you're, you have inherent worth. And so there's not this sense of like, my tribe is better than your tribe. That's a humanist aspect. And then secularism um, is kind of the, the foil to spiritual humanism. Uh, secularism, secularism, which arose in like 1850, um, is, is an idea that we can't trust spirituality. And so I... I have, uh, I disagree with that position. And so I spiritual, other examples of spiritual humanists would be like Sam Harris again. Um, Martin Luther King is a spiritual humanist. When I read his, his like PhD dissertation, he talks about his views of Christianity and they're not fundamentalist. They are unor very unorthodox and expansive. And yet he was a minister uh, but he was a minister in a sense where he wasn't trying to gain more fundamentalist converts. He was talking to a worldwide audience. And so in that sense, he's a spiritual humanist. Another spiritual humanist is uh, Mr. Rogers. So Fred Rogers, he was also a minister, but he he like downplayed in, in his sermons. He like downplayed the literalness of Christianity and studied the world's wisdom traditions uh, very much and was speaking in this broader sense. 
Um, another non-believing spiritual humanist would be like, um, or at least somebody who didn't belong to religion proper was like Mary Oliver. Um, and another one is like Ursula K. Le Guin. And so there are these people who uh, have some sense that there is, that we are connected to something beyond ourselves, but it's not about my tribe versus your tribe. It's like all of humanity and we're connected to something beyond ourselves. And I'm trying to define that beyond that. There's like, I don't really have concrete ideas of what that is. Um, but the spiritual experience itself is real. Yeah, no, no, I, I can, uh, I can connect with that because I think we're all struggling right now in the world to even define the word spiritual. Right. And yet at least all of us who have some kind of familiarity with each other, we kind of know what we're talking about. It's that sense of being in awe of, of the world around you and the mystery that's still there, even if you know what it's not. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Love it. Um, Do you want to jump into this approach, Britt? You admitted yourself again. There you go. Um, yeah, let's just let's just go through just kind of how you have them on the website, John, and sure. just kind of uh, just kind of outline the seven. And I'm sure that you thought about these things. Like you didn't just <laughs> you know magically come up with seven things off the top of your head. This was, as you mentioned, a part of a, a process of yeah. uh, what people needed out of spirituality um, in in these particular time in human history um, and how to approach it in a way that felt spiritually authentic, like intellectually authentic to you, Mm -hmm. but also had that spiritual dynamic that you could feel comfortable with. And so you put together these seven approaches and I wonder if if you could just walk us through just the first one, go ahead. And and let me just say, before you start, John, um, like Britt said, it's the number one question in this community after people start deconstructing and leaving is they want to know how to raise their children the right way, having lost what their previous faith system gave them and and they're trying to figure it out. And so I just, again, I I just kudos to you for doing it. Yeah. And we're approaching it as much as we make a statement, we also are asking questions. And so we spent a ton of time getting this list figured out. Uh, a lot of discussions and research and we're still in the question itself. We're living the question. Yeah. And so I want to preface it with that. There's, there is a lot of discussion around uh, what is spirituality and can I trust spirituality? A lot of people who um, don't feel at home in Mormonism also feel at odds with spirituality. And I know that both of you have encountered those conversations. Uh, people being, people being just, dis- distraught with the use of the word spirituality. But I agree with somebody like Sam Harris again, who says like, there just isn't another word for this exact thing. Yeah. So it's so interesting. I follow, I follow like the whatever national association of humanism on Facebook. And it's so interesting because that kind of brand of humanism without the secular part really just becomes a lot of like a lot of stuff that they post on social media is just, smart people in the past who have had really critical things to say about religion. Mm -hmm. But what happens over time is the only thing that humanism is giving you in this kind of list of quotes that they put on their social media is how you're so much better and smarter Mm -hmm. than than everyone else for not falling for this religious bamboozle. And that there's, we're finding that there's just not enough there to make Mm -hmm. a life. You can't make a life 
at least like the good life, right? Around, I'm just so much smarter than mm -hmm. you superstitious primates. And there's nothing in religion and spirituality that can help me live the good life. I already magically know how to do that because I'm smarter yeah. than everybody. <laughs> And that's just, it's so empty, right? And so when you add that spiritual component, it gives humanism a direction to work towards and some mm -hmm. depth and some um, meaning of life kind of stuff that we just need. Mm -hmm. We're finding that we need um, even outside of, you know, traditional religious bounds. So yeah. yeah, go ahead and go over the first one there. Sure. So the first one is we help parents and children find their inner compass. And this comes from another book uh, by... Uh, professor at Columbia University. Her name is Lisa Miller, and she's a psychologist who studies spirituality. And so her, she wrote a book called The Spiritual Child. And in The Spiritual Child, she talks about her, her neuro, neuroscientific research. And then she also just published a book called The Awakened Brain, which talks about more of her, um, her neuroscientific research. And she talks about an inner compass. That's what she writes. Um, she, she, she doesn't, uh, make declarations on what to call it. And so we say the same thing. We can call it conscience, spirit, source, the true self, God, or the divine, um, or even things that are more non-believing, you know, it doesn't inner compass, um, whatever you might call it. So we say that this is a really important part of human development and it's a very much overlooked part of human development. And Lisa Miller, she shows that um, people who have a good sense, a healthy sense of spirituality, like regardless of belief, regardless of whether they're part of a religion or not, uh, they have better well-being. And so like you're pointing to, Brit, like you can argue all you want that, uh, you know, we're so much smarter because we don't we don't uh, adhere to re religious dogma. But if you have if you don't have higher well-being, then it's not much of a place to to uh, be boastful of. And so she argues this again, she, she's coming at it from a place as a, as a psychologist that isn't about um, promoting any religious source at all. And so we, this is kind of our foundational point here at uplift is like spirituality matters and it's being overlooked. It's one of the reasons why people feel persistently sad and hopeless I don't know if you've seen, uh, there was a new study recently that came out from the CDC that was like showing the rates of teens who say they feel persistently sad or hopeless. And it's just skyrocketed in the past um, past few years, but then oh, even over the past two decades. It's just, uh, they're very alarming rates where more than half of um, female teens say, is like 56% of female teens say they persistently feel sad and hopeless. And um, we think that one thing that can help is this sense of spirituality of feeling connected to something beyond yourself. It's not, it's not the antidote to all the problems, uh, but it's one thing that can help. So that's gotta, the first one. Yeah. And I got to say too, just right off the bat, the idea of pointing people towards an inner compass, it, it, I think it's right away where those of us who have a bad taste in our mouth from religion, it, it, it essentially pointed us to, look at sources outside mm -hmm. of ourself as exactly. the, as the authority in our life. Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, you are telling anybody who um, takes on this approach that your goal is to point them towards that inner authority. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. Uh -huh. It's not an external authority. You can have conversations with people and you can listen to their ideas, 
but it's not about agreeing with them because they're in a place of authority. Yeah. Experts are wrong all the time, aren't they? Uh, yeah. yeah. We, we, I really like uh, one verse in, that's attributed to the Buddha, which is that, um, that it says, do not believe in, in conjecture, do not believe in authority, teachers or elders, but after careful observation and with analysis, when it agrees with, when it agrees with reason and will benefit one and all, then accept it and live by it. And so it's reason and benefiting other people, then agree with it and, and live by it. And so it's really about the internal authority. You can hear the teacher, you can hear the elder, but it's you that, you know, your inner compass, that is what yeah. is true. So Love it. what comes up for me there before we move on is um, I, as I'm having lots of this conversations about inner compass with religious people is that the, the response that always comes back is how could without some kind of authority or structure or Bible or whatever, how can you possibly um, no right from wrong. Right. Mm. And it's the same question that Socrates got too, is like, without the gods, how can you possibly know that what you're, you know, right from wrong. And he talks about, you know, the Greek word is daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N. Mm -hmm. And it's like, my inner voice tells me if it's right or wrong. And so all the way back to Socrates, when someone tries to do this, the, the pushback is always, well, how can you possibly do that without the gods, the mm -hmm. whatever, Besides, and, the gods don't agree either. Right. You know, and Zeus, for all intents and purposes, is one of the 10,000 gods who have, you know, lived and died and now died. But um, when it, you talk about people who really have um, a sense of morality from the Bible and you ask them, well, how do you know this scripture about mm -hmm. genocide or whatever is wrong or slavery, but this scripture from the Sermon on the Mount is right. And well, oh, I, I feel like this is wrong right. and I feel like this is right. And it's like, well, you can actually cut out the middleman there <laughs> because the scripture is then acting just as a foundation or a middleman to your mm -hmm. inner compass, which you're already having to use because the scriptures are incredibly messy. Amen. And so you can, that's how I really kind of, approach it with people who feel like they have to hold on to something is that you're already doing that. Even if you're a scripture driven per person, it's so messy. You're already using your inner compass to navigate mm -hmm. that anyway. You can actually just kind of take out that middleman. And um, anyway, that's, that's just what came up for me. Totally. Cool. Love it. So there's number one, take us through number two. Uh, so number two is that we integrate the best of modern science and ancient wisdom. And so we say like, hey, is there academic research about child rearing or like what is what is the latest in psychology? Let's take that and integrate it. Um, and then right alongside the best of Buddhism, Stoicism, Christianity, Hinduism, Taoism, Judaism, Sufism and others. And but then we also say like, you, you know, both science and wisdom come from cultural contexts. And so if a wisdom tradition says one thing or if science says one thing, we have to hold it with humility. We have to recognize like, this is a process. It's not even, you know, even though I really like what Lisa Miller is say saying, it's emerging science. Neurosciences, we're very early in terms of mapping the brain. And so who knows, but in 10 years, we could come out and be like, oh, what Lisa Miller said isn't, isn't accurate. And be like, okay, well, now I have to update update that. I liked, I liked what she was saying, but it turns out seven studies later, we find that 
it doesn't map, you know, then I have to adjust my worldview accordingly. And so while, <clears throat> even while we, while we integrate modern science and ancient wisdom, they're, they're just perspectives. So we have to take that for what they are. It's such a dance, right? Like there is, there are things that we humans have called wisdom that re really turns out to be really unhealthy ways to treat yeah. each other. Right. And yeah. as you're pointing out, not all science is good science. And so there's this dance of really kind of exploring both of those, seeing where they go together well, seeing where they contradict. And again, going back to number one, using that inner compass to kind of sort that out. Yep. That's right. Love and, it. and I really like this marriage too, because there's some things that science does better and some things that ancient wisdom has more to offer. So science self-corrects a lot better. There, there are mechanisms for self-correction. If you go to a scientific symposium and you refute, you refute whatever you said 10 years prior, you actually get some respect for that, you know? Mm -hmm. Versus, um, you know, in religious constructs, that's much more difficult to do. But then when you want to ask something like, what are what are rituals that are really powerful for people that last year after year, family after family? Mm -hmm. Ancient wisdom and religion has much more to say about that question than science does. So I really love this sifting process that you're doing. And it's also, it's almost very Mormon. Like, I'm just going to take the best of everything just bring right it here. Right? That's what it was supposed to be. <laughs> but yep. You're doing some beautiful sifting of just getting the best of both um, so that we're not missing, you know, wisdom from either side. And I love that you're, I love that you're inviting the families and the children who are taking these lessons to, um, oh, I just lost my thought, but uh, oh, I'm, I lost it. Sorry. I'll come back to it later. My bad. <laughs> In, Mor this, in Mormonism, I used to say it, it was a stupor of thought. It must not yeah. be true. It must not be whatever it was. It must not be true, Bill. Right. <laughs> it had something to do with the fact of like at the end of the day, it falls on the individual to kind of figure it out, and you don't need to feel pressure to to side with science. You don't need to feel pressure to side with wisdom. Rather, and nobody's telling you nobody's telling you how to do it. So you get to be, oh, this is it, which is that you're encouraging people to be a rational thinker mm -hmm. and to recognize that there still is something in these traditions yep. that, that humans through evolution um, chose this mechanism to pass on uh, technology and truths and information so that so that the human population, so that tribes could survive and perpetuate themselves. Exactly. And, and to throw all that out, it, it misses the mark. And so um, essentially inviting people to, to really explore it independently, not feeling pressure to be pulled towards the wisdom only or to be pulled towards science only, but to use their inner gut to try to figure all this stuff out, I think is, is really a marvelous uh, function of it. Yeah, that's a great point. This is one of the problems that I do have with secular humanism as a movement, which is that it cuts off, it tends to cut itself off from uh, these texts that do have lessons still today. And so, Ray, you recently did uh, the podcast episode about um, um, Jonah and the whale, right? And so it's like, this is, uh, this is an ancient wisdom text. It still holds value. And like you said, it's not about, is this historical or not? It's like, mm -hmm what is this teaching us at the level of metaphor, which is, uh, which is a level that can resonate beyond just the thinking mind. 
Right, because these stories lasted for 2,000 years for a reason, mm -hmm. right? You can at least approach scripture with that, with that intent. Mm -hmm. So good. Good stuff. All right, so next one. Yeah, the third one is that we help parents and children find their individual purpose. And so this is this is similar to like Strengths Finder, uh, which is like everybody is approaching life in a different way. And it's really important to to acknowledge that. I think for most of my life, I had this notion that like my way was the right way and other ways weren't the right way. And I increasingly think like, no the way that I live is a result of my personality and, and inclinations. And th it's not that this is the, that my approach to life is the right approach to life. Even, even in liking the wisdom traditions, it's like, I like them and they're almost like a hobby for me. This, this interest in spirituality and the wisdom traditions. And so I can, I can say like, I like it. And if it resonates with you, that's amazing. That's great. Then we have something in common, you know, and we like the same things, but I don't think everybody has to like the same things or approach it the same way. And so that's one of our approaches at Uplift is to say, like, we help kids get really clear about who they are and what their strengths are. And I've learned this as a parent, like um, my, when I, my older kid was little, I was really trying to get him to learn the piano because I know the piano. And so we would do these lessons over and over and over and again. And it was just like not working out. You know, I would just try to get him to practice. No, 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 no. Um, and then my younger son, he just wants to. And so he just practices and practices and practices. And it's like, oh, you know, I should have known that I don't have to have all of my kids love the piano just cause I love the piano. It's like, no, you teach them. What is, what are your strengths? What do you want out of life and lean into those things and double down on those things. And so that's a big part of our approach is that we help parents see that they don't have to have their kids um, be patterned after their own image. Their kids are their own selves and their kids are going to have their own interests and the parents can guide them to find their interests. And so we say here, um, that's why we support flexible, flexibility and intuition as you help your children become their true selves. The process and results will be different for everyone. And that's not only okay, it's ideal. Yeah, I, what I came to realize just in the last couple of years is that, I don't know how many people are on the planet now, 7 billion, something like that. There are 7 billion different ways to human. And we really, you know, when I went to school, you just, I, I was a kid and I just thought everybody was the same. We're all identical. We all learn the same way. You know, the teacher's up, I'm putting something on the chalkboard and I get it. So I know everybody else in the classroom must get it. And the reality is we are all so different from each other that any kind of curriculum or approach that does not take into account that each human is doing it differently um, is going to fall short. And I think, again, kudos to you for, for adapting to, to kind of, the real way the world works. I, I have to say just on a personal note that this was my son's favorite lesson is mm. when we, when we did um, you have a lesson on like kind of personality typing, like strengths and weaknesses. There was like eight areas of intelligence and the kids got to um, my oldest two got to kind of map out their 
personality. Mm. And what I loved is in the lesson, we kind of created what would be a life that would be really not great for your your set of strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And so my, my son got to write out, you know what, based on my personality here, um, being an English teacher and coming home and gardening, it was something like that. He like wrote out, this would be a life that would be like, not my best life because (laughs) these are all of my weaknesses, none of my passions. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote, uh, these are the kinds of things that I would really love for, for who I am in my life. It was, Mm -hmm. We've been doing these lessons every Sunday and it was his favorite lesson. And I think one of the reason it was is because and and we're seeing this in I I love to read the studies about Gen Z spirituality and all the Mm -hmm. polls that are being done. And it's interesting that, you know, 20 years ago, if you asked an 18 year old what they want, they wanted a career and they wanted to start a family and this and that. And the first thing that pops up for Gen Z is they want to know who they are. Like it's this very, and I think social media creates some of this pressure too, right? Like who everybody has their kind of thing, but who am I? And so I really loved this lesson because it gave my children a sense of this is, this is who I am. And this would be a life that would be really good for me and that I would love. And my son, who's 11, who gets to, who's really annoyed by his younger sister, who seemingly doesn't do anything as good as him because she's much younger. Um, he got to see that she had a lot of emotional intelligence that he Mm -hmm. didn't have. Right. Mm -hmm. And she got to kind of claim that and say, you know, I'm really aware when someone else is sad. And that's a, that's a strength that I have that my brother doesn't have as much. And so we got to do this as a family, which is very much like, if you have kids, you'll know this analogy, like the end of the movie Encanto and why everybody loves it is because you get to see a family with different gifts, see each other right? I see you and I see your gift. And it's so powerful because we all just really want to be seen, especially in our families. And so you created this beautiful lesson that allowed that to happen in my family. It was so beautiful. It's still my son's um, favorite lesson. And so I really, really loved how you approached that. And and I just want to put up on the screen, I, I put up the answer and didn't put up the question. So uh, JC's asking how do survey stats on teen exa- anxiety and depression yeah. compare to the U.S. and two other countries? Most of Europe highly secular. Is it a lack of spirituality or other causes? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not. This is above my pay grade. But somebody else is trying to answer him. JC, it depends on which age group. But across them, all of the USA is basically the worst, but not always by that much. And I think you know, I think the big separator for us is the media. Um, it, it just plays such a bigger role, Hollywood and actors and movies and uh, YouTube sensation stuff, you know, people who have their own YouTube channels who do incredibly well. There's, I know that each of my kids, especially my younger ones, they all wanted to be YouTubers, you know, they always wanted to. And so I think that kind of pressure is unique in this country. But as he's pointing out, my guess would be that it's similar across the world. I love I that do- question. Yeah. I do think also when you listen to like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris as they're traveling, any any of the four horsemen of you know the apocalypse, when they're traveling, they always say that this message of secular spirituality is the hardest in the U.S. because we're just we're so polarized because religion really got messed mixed together with politics so that just everybody's triggered, right? If you're religious, you feel like you're being attacked. You have to really push away science because, um, 
you know, there's just no way to integrate it. And then if you're scientific, you don't do any kind of spirituality because you don't want to be like them. And it's just super, super polarized. And you don't get that in other places on the planet. There's a little bit more of a middle ground where you can have these discussions, but it's, it's just so charged and everybody's triggered on, on every side that it's really hard to claim this, this space that you're claiming. I think that's part of it too. What do, what are your thoughts on that one? I, I think it's a very good question. It's a question I have as well, because most of the data that I've seen does show that, uh, well, European countries have higher well-being than the U.S., generally speaking. And uh, I personally think that they have a more uh, felt sense of spirituality, even though they have lower uh, religious belief and religious adherence. Um, it's hard to quantify all of that. Like what, how do you, I haven't seen studies that say like, here's the rates of spirituality versus the rates of other, of other countries. Um, I would love to see data on that. But when I check out, say like, um, even children's shows from other countries, they just have this quieter sense about them. And like, um, I don't know, like I, I would look at the, uh, children's show Bluey or Kipper the Dog. Um, I guess an American show that does have spirituality is like Avatar, you know, watch these shows with my kids and I'll just be attuned to like, what's, how are they approaching uh, these topics? And is it like from an aggressive polarized perspective, which tends to be like hyper sensationalized often here in the U S and European approaches. I, I would call them more spiritual, even though they're more secular. And so but I'm living into this question. It's a question that's on my mind very much because I'm trying to track, well, what is well-being? That's the more important thing than me uh, being right. You know, it's like, well, what leads to higher well-being? I'm interested in following that. I do think that World War II had a bigger, you know, obviously it had a bigger influence on Europe because it wasn't fought here. But I, I do think it changed Europe. You know, I think there was just this sense that, we can't do this anymore. Like we have to all be human and we have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit more of that camaraderie that, that we're all human and we're all, um, you know, trying to build a good life for as many people as we can. And in the U S we're just still really polarized about those things because we've never had to just face that we blew each other up, you know? So it's, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot there. Mm-hmm. All right, take us into the next one. So this is about uh, human development. So we believe that human beings develop throughout childhood and adulthood. And so this could be Fowler stages of faith. At Lower Lights, we talk about stages, uh, which is a model that Thomas is uh, well-versed in. Um, one that I really like is Brian McLaren's. Who wrote a, he wrote a book called Faith After Doubt, and he talks about simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Uh, and so we say that lessons should be catered from and to these stages. And so you should be aware of what stage you're in and what stage your kids are in. Um, this doesn't mean that you have to teach your kid like a, a fundamentalist view of Yahweh, you know, for instance, you because there can be this notion that like, okay, in simplicity, I need to teach them about literalism and fundamentalism. And then they grow out of that. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the approach, but I think that uh, a parent who's in a stage of perplexity or harmony should uh, be aware that they need to make things more concrete for their kids. 
than they might need themselves. And so we just say that kids are developing and adults are developing, developing development never stops. That's basically this one. Yeah. And to cater, as you point out, to cater it to the stages, that's a big deal. You, when people are in a certain stage, something in a, in a later stage just doesn't make the same kind of sense and it it just isn't workable. Um, Yeah. So anyway, again, great, great that that's implemented. I love how this, yeah, I love how this is really natural with other areas of our life. So if it's science, you know, whatever science is taught in first grade that birds fly and this happens. And then in later phases of science, like, well, that's not really true. Here's the new model. And then that's not really true. Here's the new model until you get really, you know, increasing forms of Hmm. complexity and nuance. And we just consider that really natural, right? It's natural that these are the rules for science when you're in kindergarten and they're not going to be the same rules for science when you're in fifth grade and when you're in post-grad physics, Um, But somehow with religion, we kind of got stuck, right? We got stuck with um, not really understanding this process in terms of spirituality as well. And I really do like Brian McLaren's um, analogy there, because I think sometimes in especially post-Mormon spaces, there'll be a lot of like, well, I'm in stage five and you're in stage three, so I'm better than you. You get Mm. some of that narrative going on of like, Mm you are here and I'm here and this is further along on the path and it can get really judgmental. But I really like how Brian framed it, which is our brains just naturally go from simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and then we find our brains have to find some way to integrate it back into harmony. And that we're more like trees where we just continually kind of like rings on a tree, just increase um, through that process. And I think that that to, that analogy to me is more um, compassionate that we're all on that journey together rather than that, rather than some of the models that are like, I'm here and you're here. Mm-hmm. So I'm more advanced than you. That tends to not be sometimes the most helpful way to like have a conversation with another human when <laughs> right. you're um, trying to place people, in, you know, in their respective stages. So I really like that analogy too. Love it. All right. The next one. So uh, we talk about complementary virtues or polarities. And so we pull from Aristotle. Uh, He talks about the golden mean. So he says, if you have too much courage, you're reckless. And if you have um, too, too much caution, you're paralyzed. And so this idea is also in the Chinese principle of the yin and yang, yin and yang. Uh, So we say that each virtue held too tightly is a vice. And a lot of what uh, we're pointing to is, and what you're highlighting here, Britt, is that you had to live with humility, right? It's it's like you can think that you're amazing because you have uh, great caution, and this is something that I've struggled with a lot. I've realized more and more over my life is like, I tend to err on the side of caution. And I think like, oh, I'm so great because I'm just very cautious. I'm very analytical. I sit back and think about it over and over and over again. And it's like, okay, but you're often paralyzed. You know, there's this part of me that's looking at myself. and like, when are you really courageous, John? And it's like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable when I'm if I have to be in a spot that's really, that requires a lot of courage, like really standing firm to a position that with somebody who I disagree with, 
you know, my tendency is to kind of um, back down. And so even while I'm holding my, my virtue of caution, you know, I have to be aware that like, maybe that is turning into a vice for me. Maybe I'm just being weak and maybe I'm being paralyzed. And so by playing with polarities, by experiencing it as a family, like, you know, what, it, what, what are you, what are you naturally drawn to? Which virtues are you naturally drawn to? And where do you hold them too tightly? Um, it's easy to talk about virtues in isolation, but it's much more fruitful to talk about them with other virtues because it quickly highlights uh, where you tend to go wrong. And that's a much more interesting conversation than where do other people tend to go wrong? And so that's where we talk about uh, polarities and complementary virtues. Mm. Yeah, I um, every every strength can be a weakness. We're going to have on in a couple of maybe it's next week. We're going to have on a, a person who understands the enneagram. That's what they're certified mm -hmm. in, and and there's these personality types. And when you delve into those, each personality type. When it's in a healthy state, it, it does all these good things. But when it's not in a healthy state, those same sort of characteristics and gifts can draw somebody to doing unhealthy things. And mm -hmm. so I, I think you're pointing to um, a great truth, which is some of us like to hold up the thing we're good at and say, yeah. here it is. This is this is me. I'm good at this. Yeah. And the reality is it's probably biting you in the booty at least somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Love it. I, I like this approach too, because um, often when even wisdom teachers, sometimes when you talk about developing this or developing that, how you integrate that really depends on where you are on that spectrum that you're talking about. And I experienced this when uh, I was, I had some postpartum depression after my youngest and, you know, I, I'd ask people about, you know, how can I, or my oldest, sorry, how can I um, deal with this? And I got a lot of, well, just, just try meditating. Right. And so do these, do these meditations and the meditation advice I was given was to do a lot of like ego dissolving kinds of mm -hmm. exercises, but I'm like cleaning up poo in the middle of the night. Like my ego is not a problem. <laughs> like I was way too much on the, I'm not a person mm -hmm. anymore because this thing yep. is really attached to me and I don't have a sense of self anymore, but most of, especially men who were, you know, I was in conversation with about, about meditative practices yeah. that would help gave me these practices that are really good. If you are in a place where like your ego is like really driving your life and your choices, mm -hmm. but I was not in that place, right? I was in a, I needed to build up my ego a little bit because mm -hmm. I had lost my sense of self. And so I, I think about that a lot whenever we talk about these things, because how you, in how you approach how to develop a virtue or a practice really depends on which side of the spectrum you're coming towards. And if you don't, then it's just not going to be the best advice for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I experienced that firsthand when I did an, I did an ego dissolving really deep meditation. It was, it was the headless uh, meditation. Yeah. Um, and I, and I did that and I wasn't in like a great mental space to do that. And it took me about four days to like come back to, my sense of self. And it was just not really what I needed at that time. Um, but anyway, it just reminds me of that approach. And now I'm just really, since that experience, I'm just really sensitive to where is this person before I offer any kind of mm -hmm. advice. Right. 
or else it's just not going to be what you need. Mm, yeah. Everybody needs something different, don't they? Mm-hmm. And, and what you think, and it, it happens so much on this front end of life. We just assume again, people are like us. So when we share an insight about how to human, or I'll see a way that something happens and I'll make a comment. And then I realize that the friend next to me is rolling their eyes at me because they do it completely different. Mm-hmm. And it's my blind spot. And so the more we can see that everybody's doing it differently, we're all alien to each other. Even if we all look like we're just skin and bones and a consciousness that's all the same, it's not. And, and recognizing those differences kind of eliminates or at least softens or dampens up those blind spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all right. The next one. Uh, the next one has ties to Mormonism, which is uh, that we value lineage. And so we talk about how everyone comes from somewhere. Our ancestral stories make us who we are. And um, we quote psychologist Elaine Reese here, who says that adolescents with the stronger knowledge of family history have more robust identities, better coping skills, and lower rates of depression and anxiety. And so we've really integrated this in our home, like just talking about um, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, those who believed, those who didn't believe, you know, the one thing that happens in Mormonism is that the stories tend to start with this person converted to the church. And it's like, well, what, what did they leave behind? Like what rifts in the families did that cause? And who were the families that they left behind? Like, what are those stories? And so we're saying like, we want to own all of the stories, the full line of lineage. And one thing that I think a lot about is just like um, my family line was Mormon very early on on both sides, but that still represents, you know, even if it's 200 years, that's a speck in my, in my line of, you know, it depends on what estimates you use, but like humanity has been around for 200 to 300,000 years. You know, that's a, that's a tiniest part of my lineage. And so what is my lineage going all the way back with all my ancestors and, and really thinking through um, that full line so that kids have a place. They feel like they, they are part of a bigger narrative and that can get really lost in a consumerist secular society where it's just, um, here's another thing. Here's another bit of drama. Like you get, you lose sense of ground. And that's one thing that religion does very powerfully is situates people in a bigger narrative. And so in, in, because um, many of our members like aren't religious, though there are many that are as well, uh, for those who aren't religious, we want them to know that they're still part of something bigger than themselves. And it's their lineage, their family stories. So that's what this one is really getting at. Love it. Yeah, that is one of the things. I mean, religion is always talking about lineage. And in the secular world, I don't know that anybody's, you know, I, I know that genealogy is a big thing. Um, but I think outside of that niche, uh, people really aren't thinking beyond their, their great grandparents, are they? Mm-hmm. So cool. one of our lessons that we did was um, like questions to ask your grandparents. And so just sitting down and talking to your grandparents and really getting to know them. Um, and then, you know, if great grandparents are alive, do that as well. And so that's a way for kids to explore it that they might not otherwise do. Love it. This is one I I think about a lot because I have adopted children. Mm. And when we originally adopted them, we were active in the Mormon church. Mm. And so there's some lineage to kind of bring them into a tribe to bring them into. Mm. Um, And then when we left, it was like this 
this huge weight on my heart of, mm. of I have these, these children that I've adopted. When you have adopted children, identity issues are always an issue to some degree. And then I also took them out of this religious community that's most popular in Boise, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, that was a risk, right? That was a risk to do. And so I just so appreciate you um, giving a lot of tools for that. Um, because without the tools of how to um, construct some new stories for my family, this is our family story. This is what we're about. And integrating things from both cultures, from all of the stories that make up our family, um, without the tools to really do that, I feel like um, I would really be setting up, especially my adopted children, with a bit of a disadvantage. Because if I wasn't proactive about it, they'd have no story about who they are and why they're in our family and what we're about and where they come from and all those things. And so it's something I have to do really, really intentionally for, for my family and the choices that I made. And so I just so appreciate the the resources that you've put on there. Mm -hmm. Love it. Let's um, let's grab the next one. All right. Uh, so we focus on relationships. And so in institutions uh they they like relationships to the extent that it buoys up the institution but when it, when a relationship threatens the institution they get more wary and so this is in in like the more strident cults uh they are interested in shunning and so we say kind of the opposite like we're most interested in relationships and so the the touchstone should be like is this strengthening your relationship you know when you do when you do a lesson are you feeling closer and closer as a family? And if not, then like strip out things that aren't working in the lesson. Like you don't have to get through, get through the lesson. That's not the, the point of this isn't to get through a lesson. The point is to have stronger relationships. And so um, that, that means that the experience will look very different for different families because the metric is like, okay, do we feel closer together? you know, as time goes on. And for some families, that might mean that they de-emphasize certain learning aspects of the lessons and, and emphasize um, game aspects of the lessons. I know that uh, some of my kids want often is, is that kind of thing. And so we'll even spread out the lesson bits into the week and then focus more on just enjoying each other's company uh, afterward like playing a game or something like that so yeah that's what we say here our, our resources are means to the end of deepening your relationships above all that's why we exist because that's there it's very difficult to know what the overall purpose of life is but one thing that is clear is like um having closer relationships with each other yeah it seems as though the systems that are in the world and not just the unhealthy religious ones, but even, you know, whether it's the United States of America, for instance, which is, you know, a system and it's a myth and all that goes into that. It, it seems like all these systems were built to perpetuate themselves and often individuality kind of gets lost. And what I think you're also pointing to, and it's maybe a little less said here, but I think it's crucial is that individuality is important that, mm -hmm. that, you know, whether someone is um, does, human the same way you do human is a separate conversation from whether we're in relationship and we're kind to each other and we're building that. And so, um, yeah, I, I, 
I think relationships work best when people make space for the person next to them to be different. Mm -hmm. And, and it seems like you're pointing to that. That's right. What I, what I love here is it's really just bringing the best of just kind of all the research that we're getting from people like Brene Brown, which, you know, she really f focuses on the difference between fitting in and belonging. Right. And, mm. and this is something that we inherited from Mormonism is that you, you fit in here if you, if, if you meet these certain behaviors and these certain things that we can expect from you and you get really enmeshed families, which is that we're all the same and we have all the same values and we have the, all the same kind of practices. And as long as everyone's doing that, like we're a close family. And then the problem with enmeshed families is it mm -hmm. only takes one. If one mm -hmm. gay kid is born into that family, that family is broken, right? Mm -hmm. It can't hold just can't hold it. And so you're speaking to this, you know, we're, we're not going to do this fitting in thing anymore where we're expecting things from each other in order to be in relationship. We're going to belong to each other. Um, and that's some next level stuff that we're still, that we're still trying to understand. Um, and I, I, I think Brene is probably the best at trying to help us understand that world, but I really love that jump that you make because it's different than what was modeled for us in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things that I've loved the most about the experience with Uplift is uh, my personal experience and experience from members say the same thing, like th th we'll have um, lessons with extended family and uh, and members will have the same. And the extended family will have a bunch of different beliefs or non-beliefs. And they're finally able to just kind of relax. It's not about like, we, do you believe or do you not believe? You know, I believe this. And it turns into a disagreement, an argument. It's like, no, we're discussing compassion. And we're, if you want to bring in a Mormon text, bring in a Mormon text. And I'm going to bring in a Buddhist text. And, like, people are able to have these conversations again. Whereas uh, before, like, in mixed-faith marriages, every single time they would try, it was it just turned into a fight. And it's like that's where we're, that's where we're hoping um, people can avoid. And we've seen it happen that people can say like, okay, we're all on the same page. We might have different, we might disagree about beliefs, but we all want to be more compassionate. We all want to be kinder. We all want better emotional intelligence. And we all want to connect with our family, our, our past, you know, down the line. Um, so at its best, uh, it's giving people a way to have these conversations again, which ideally lead to spiritual experiences in the home. It's like, wow, I really feel, I really feel peace and gratitude that we could have this experience together. You know, that's the the fruit of what we're aiming for. I, I'd like to spend a couple minutes just kind of glancing through the lessons, but I wonder if we ought to cover, you've had some other questions, Britt, if we maybe touch on those first and then kind of jump into that. Yeah, I had a question. I ask really this from anyone who's in the kind of space that you're working in because it's it's really a moving target. And we've actually talked about this before because I've asked you this before, John. <laughs> but how do you approach the God word? Because mm. sub on the side of subjective experience, if someone is outside in nature with me and we're on a walk and they say, I feel God here, mm. I 100% know what they mean. Mm -hmm. I 100% know what they're saying. 
But then when I'm in objective conversations like Bill and I have about, you know, what do we think is actually going on here? I'm fairly critical of the Mm -hmm. idea of God, you know? And so I have this space where like I subjectively, I know what you're saying. I want to meet you with that word. But then I also want to be intellectually honest Mm -hmm. and not perpetuate things that I think are, you know, not helpful for building the humanity that I I think is best and all that stuff. And so where, where, where do you end up with the God word and how did you, I know you had conversations about the God word as you're putting together these lessons. So how did you approach that? It is, I feel a lot of inner tension around that word still the way that we're exploring it right now. And that, and it can change because we're, we're adapting based on what we learn and what, and discussions like these, who knows, but this discussion will influence that. Um, But what we've done so far is when we have covered the Jewish wisdom stories, like in the, in the Hebrew Bible, we use the word Yahweh and we recognize that it's off-putting to Orthodox Jews. um, But we've kind of taken the approach that this, this approach isn't for fundamentalist or Orthodox people and they have they have things for them um and but that simultaneously makes me uncomfortable and so i don't know exactly what to do with it but that's what we've chosen to do so far is to use the word yahweh in those stories and so yahweh and abraham yahweh and moses you know and so that that creates this gap so if we do um bring up God, and we haven't really in our lessons, we've avoided it so far. Um, for the most part, we might have a quote or two that points that uses the word. Um, it creates a gap so that people can still um, say, okay, we're not meaning Yahweh when we talk about God, which is the default for Western culture, right? It's like, oh, you're talking about God, you mean Oh, you be, you believe God commanded Abraham to kill his son Isaac? You know that that kind of leads right into that that conversation. It's like, oh, I'm talking about something different, right? Um, God would be something more akin to Brahman in the Hindu tradition, like the God beyond the God or gods, or the God before the gods, um, or this universal spirit um, that is a complete mystery. <laughs> uh, but is more of an experience that we have. Um, but it's it's like such dicey territory that we haven't leaned into it and we're not completely sure how to lean into it or if we even should lean into it. In our lesson on spirituality, for instance, it's just about the spiritual experience. It says, like William James documented hundreds of spiritual experiences and there are other other databases of spiritual experiences there are so many that it is clear that it's a real thing like there there are a lot of commonalities in spiritual experiences and people have them and that's kind of where we leave it we don't go to the the next step which is say because of this therefore there is a god and the god is this 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 you know we just kind of leave it at spiritual experiences are real i'm uh I'm curious, you mentioned Oasis in the beginning, and I think the concept of Oasis is gorgeous, right? Get a bunch of folks together after they've deconstructed religion and give them a community and give them a place where thoughts can still be shared, wisdom can still be taught, um, people can still feel the feelings that they had in that religion, but Mm -hmm. 
but without all that dogma and all the unhealthiness. And and yet Oasis didn't didn't work as well, I think, as mm-hmm. people had hoped. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like there's something when we deconstruct religion, there's something about we don't want to go back to two hours of something or an hour mm-hmm. of something. We we kind of claimed our lives back and we feel we feel something not okay when someone says, No, no, come again. Let's try this a different way. Yeah, right. <laughs> And, and so here you've created a, a curriculum for families, and I think specifically for children. And it seems like it's different than the idea of Oasis, and yet there's also some overlap. Maybe speak for a moment about how you see it being different and uh, some of the successes that you're, that you're seeing happen. Yeah. One problem with the secular humanist model is that um, it can kind of become about the flavor of the week. Like this is a hot political topic. Let's talk about this hot political topic today or something akin to that, which isn't, it's not to say that that's wrong or that's bad. And that might be going back to the idea of individual strengths and, and that kind of thing. It might fit for certain people it might be just the exact thing they need. And so if so, like two thumbs up, awesome. Um, but I think that, what religion does that Oasis doesn't is focus on divine experience or spiritual experience rather. And so it's like, we're gathering for the goal of um, having a spiritual experience. It's not just information because I can go, I can get information from a lot of places. So it's like, we're here to have a, a transcendent experience of some kind. And so we try to structure our lessons such that, they can lend themselves to having spiritual experience and spiritual experience is kind of the focal point, which is um, to say like an experience that, you know, we all know what we're saying. We're like, feel the spirit in, in Mormon vernacular. And you don't have to have any of those beliefs to feel the spirit, but um, that's, that's really the ultimate goal. And so that's one difference is like spirituality is different than secularism. Um, the other is, that, yeah, there's something to be said for figuring out what to do when it comes to like the, the form of church. Does the form, is the form of church even the right thing at all? Do people really want that form? Meaning what you're saying, Bill, like meeting two hours on Sundays. And I don't know. It, it, my experience with Oasis, it, it sounds like it mirrors yours, which is like, maybe not. Maybe, maybe it's not quite the thing. Um, I know that in Thrive, John Dillon talks about um, pods, and I really liked what, he, what he's had to say about that. Like, okay, so Oasis wasn't quite the thing, but people still want community, and so can you form pods with other families? And we're very keen on whether that emerges naturally in, in Uplift, whether families say, okay, we like hiking together and we like boating together or whatever it might be. Um, but it would also be nice every, say once a month, we meet together with other families and we talk about compassion. We talk about our family stories with each other. Uh, and we've, uh, seen that happen and, and have done that as part of uplift. And so that's exciting. Potentially it's just like pods of people meeting together and you just have a discussion, uh, where you're vulnerable and authentic and honest. And then you just have the kids play together, uh, in a park, you know, for instance. Um, 
It is, that is the single biggest driver for all of this for me. It's like, I get the sense that people are lonelier than ever, but we don't know, like, we don't have permission to connect at the deepest levels for all ages. You know, we can connect here at the deepest levels and we can connect, like I said, at Lower Lights or um, other other places thrive. Um, but for all ages, it just, I don't see where it's existing. And so whether it's uplift or not, that's not the, that's not the more most important thing to me. It's like, but can we be part of fostering whatever wants to emerge, whatever form that takes? And I want uplift to be part of that. Yeah. yeah I've, I've talked to, I've talked to John quite a bit about this problem. Cause I'm really curious this is really pioneering, right? Nobody's fig figured this out and we're all kind of experimenting. And so it's super interesting that, you know, I've watched secular churches who do kind of high church mm -hmm. and they'll stay for a couple of years and then they fail. You know, yeah. we're watching, we're watching them fail. Mm -hmm. And then even thrive is, has some challenges that they're facing and their, their future is kind of uncertain. Um, as far as how they're going to navigate things in the future. And then you have families who, you know, are trying to do their own thing. But like you say, like they're, they're lonely, their kids don't have anyone, mm -hmm. you know, to play with and grow up with. And so I've talked to John about the pods and that seems to be the best answer that we have so far, since no one has really done secular high church. And it may not even be possible that, you know, without dogma, without a lot of people in kind of stage three fellers of faith, it may not be possible to build churches like that, like we've done in the past. And so the question is, what does spirituality look like for everyone, you know, for the whole country moving forward as we're all, as a lot of people, not all, as a lot of people are deconstructing religion. And so this pod answer of, of you've got to find a couple families to do life with. And if you have that, you have more than you think you do. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have a lot and that's, mm -hmm. that's what I've talked to John about. And that's kind of what we're seeing is that if you have some kind of spiritual curriculum, like uplift, you have a couple of families that will show up for you when you're sick. That that's as best as we're finding in this kind of post-religious community space, because it may, it may not be possible to build churches now, you know, with, with social media and different needs and different preferences and whatever, and, and less dogma and all those things, we may not be able to do the big high churches like, like we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Those may be dying and we have got to figure out a new way to do religious communities. And mm -hmm. I'm really curious to see how we're collectively answering that question. Yeah. I'm just going to add one thing to that, that I've been thinking a lot about, which is that I, part of me wonders if, um, the way forward is to not make it about being post-religious rather to have it be like, Oh, you're religious and we're not religious. And yet we can still gather together. And so I don't know for sure. And that could, I could be completely wrong about this hunch, but it's like less about um, trying to move beyond religion as a, as a whole as a whole organization or an organization, like a whole group uh, moving, trying to move beyond religion and like trying to move with religion. And so it's like, okay, yeah, you go to church on Sunday, but then you go to uh, this other thing together, whatever this other thing is where you talk about spirituality. And if you, you're not even talking about, are you in or are you out of religion? It's like, we're all on the same team. 
we're all trying to have higher well-being. And so I, that's kind of the sense also, another thing about secular humanism, where it's like, we're, by saying we're all moving beyond religion, I wonder if that ultimately um, is a, a reason that it's not able to survive over the long term. Again, I'm not, it's all a question. For it me. may not, yeah, it may not be a story that's compelling enough to last, right? Mm -hmm. Because religions have really good stories and, and just trying to say we're post-religious and that's our identity, that just may not be a compelling enough story, right? And so I do it. think, yeah. And so I do think that in the future, I think one of the issues, and we talked about this when we did an episode on Elaine de Baton, is that one of the issues that we did in America was that by saying that we don't do any spirituality in the public sphere and everybody's got to do it private is that we know that spirituality is a need for well-being. And so I think in the future, we're going to have to see like YMCA's libraries, things like mm -hmm. that, where you should be able to go to your local YMCA where there's tons of programs for well-being and mm -hmm. have a real meditation course, have a yeah. real book club about da da da, have a world's religions class where you mm -hmm. come and discuss it because it's just exactly. part of human well-being. But we don't, right? Because we exactly. say, oh, that's oh, that's spirituality, so that has to be private. And then we're all kind of trying to figure out life on our own mm -hmm. and we're miserable. And so somehow we've got to we, we've secularized badly, right? Which is part mm -hmm. of his message. We've secularized badly. So somehow we've got to make it, yeah, we've got to have a better story than just we're post-religious. And we've also have to somehow may, make it more accessible, just like wellness programs at the YMCA yeah. um, so that people can get access to these things that humans need that we're trying to figure out how to do. It's messy, it's messy. And uh, I was looking at, you know, as you guys are answering that question, I'm, uh, oh my goodness, I went blank again. Um, oh, dang, dang, dang. It was, uh, never mind. It, it, I'm totally blown well, up today. My brain is no, somewhere else. We'll keep talking. It'll, it'll come yeah, back to you. It'll, it'll come, come back. back to you. Yeah, I love what you're saying, Britt. It's a, that's it exactly. I want to figure out how to help move the culture in such a way that people can mention Jesus or Jonah and the whale and people's uh, people don't get irate or like feel really tense about it. They're not like, are you, are you evangelical Christian? You mentioned Jesus. It's like, no, it's like Jesus says wisdom teacher and it's fine. Like we're all okay with, uh, with that, uh, coming up in conversation or coming up in a secular context. Um, and yet it's still so divisive. And I think needlessly so. Yeah. When I so. post something like the Jonah and the whale, um, I'm not making anybody happy. The religious people right, are mad. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no echo chamber for me when I do things right. like that, right? Yeah. Um, the religious people are mad that I'm, you know, not taking their religious text literally and I'm playing with it and these kind of psych mm -hmm. bringing in psychology and all these things to work with this text. And then non-religious people, they'll see the title and they just won't, they won't click on it. Jonah yeah. and the whale. I'm done with Jonah and the whale, right? There's nothing there for me. And, and I think there is, I think yeah. I thought there was enough there that I did a podcast episode on it, but, but there's no echo chamber for that. And it's one of the reasons why even in doing this podcast with Bill and I, if we were just going to do a, 
we're going to do a podcast every week about how stupid religion is. We get a lot of followers. And if we had a one about how uh, to make Mormonism work and it's the one true thing, there'd be a lot of followers and we're trying to find, you know, this, this, this space that's not so polarized, but there's, there's not the easy echo chambers and the thousands of followers that you would get if we were to kind of pick sides. It's a frontier. That's hard. Yeah, it is a frontier, but you know, that's our, that's our pioneer heritage coming through. We're just going to pioneer through. Yeah. (laughs) I I did remember the thing I think is the greatest separator between you and a thing like Oasis is you're giving people control of their time and you're giving a family control of their time. You're giving the pods, if that's the word we're going to use, if they do this in a group setting, control of their time. Once Mm -hmm. I left my religion, my Sunday mornings, for instance, are let's make some coffee and I'm going to have some me time before the rest of the family wakes up and to go to some place to get in the car and drive somewhere. It just doesn't sound as interesting to me anymore. And so by formatting it in lessons, and I'm going to put those up here on the, on the screen by formatting it in terms of lessons, you give people the chance to form their own schedule on when this works. So maybe it's Monday night, maybe it's Sunday morning, maybe it's Tuesday, middle of the day, but they get to decide. And I think that makes it so much more easy for people to put it into practice and to, and to, and to get going on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to show folks this because this to me, Britt and I have had multiple conversations on and off the air about how we need to create a program, a system, a, a new religion that's not a religion per se, that passes on what the good that religion does as Elaine de, de Baton uh, points to, and you guys are mentioning him, um, and does it in a way that there's no dogma, there's not, there's not, you don't have to believe in magic, you don't have to believe in supernatural, but you're giving your family real, concrete principles, characteristics, ideas to wrestle with that that make us all better human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, as I went through your lesson library, uh, foundations there, family time, inner compass, lineage, uh, strengths, polarities, growing up, spirituality, timeless wisdom. Values, kindness, gratitude, compassion, humility, forgiveness, mindfulness, grit, honesty, self-compassion, list goes on and on. Um, Emotional well-being. I thought this was amazing. Emotions. You've got several on there. Then you've got these big ones, anxiety, depression, anger, grief, shame. Love it. Life topics, intentions, friendship, grandparents, humor, racism, uh, LGBTQ uh, plus uh, self-advocacy, role models, hero's journey, which Britt and I are pretty fond of, mm-hmm. uh, purpose, flow, bullying, sexuality, consent, activism, habits, addiction, family life, mindful eating, chores, conflict, digital technology, sleep, wisdom practices. You've got a bunch in there, music, meditation, journaling, contemplation, critical thinking. Um, and then you jump down here to the wisdom traditions and here you are sharing the major um, religious or sort of religious types of systems that are out there and, and helping us at least know the benefit that each of those bring in and to take them seriously. Talk about holidays. Britt and I talked about Elaine de Baton's Atheism, Atheism 2.0. And one of the things that stood out to me that I never thought of before was the ability of religion to point us to being in awe of the universe mm-hmm. through liturgical calendar and through certain holidays. And totally. when we go back to, yeah. And so you're, you're just hitting it out of the park. So there you've got all those holidays up there. Uh, I think that's the end of it. Yep. And uh, I told Britt off the air before we started, before you came on, we have been talking about this idea of creating a system where neither one of us, I think is going to do it. I don't think it's going to happen, but 
somebody needs to. It's just too much work for me, but it wasn't too, mer- too much work for Uplift because <laughs> they did it. And if I was going to create a system, I would, I would pull up your website first and I would steal all of these first. And then I would have to brainstorm for a long, long time to try to come up with 10 more to add. Cause you really got almost in my mind, you got most of these big things that need to be included. And I can't say enough. If somebody's out there listening right now and you, and, and again, as Britta and I have said, and, and you hinted at at the beginning, this is the question that is hitting people the most as they let go of their religion. They got all the tools and resources they needed though, before they left. Now they're raising a young family and they don't know how to not give them the religion, but give them the things that religion did that was good. Mm-hmm. And you did it. And so for anybody listening, if you're trying to answer that question, the answer to the question is uplift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just want to throw in my recommendation too. Last week, and I posted this on Facebook because I wanted people to know um, that this is what my family does in in case that they were in need of something and 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 I tagged you, John, in it. So last week, my family did Easter and Earth Day, those two lessons together. And so there's, uh, I love the cute little videos that you add. We talked about the how the story of Easter and the Easter bunny came to America. And then we went outside on my property and we looked for all the signs of spring. Um, and then I was able to ask my oldest a couple questions like, um, you know, what does it feel like when it's, when you feel like winter in your heart or spring in your heart, what does that feel like? You know, some deeper level questions. And, um, you know, we, we fed the ducks and we, did some stuff with my bees and had this beautiful lesson through uplift so that I don't have to do all the work of finding these questions and YouTube videos and, and topics every week. Cause we're all busy. It's, it's hard to, to do all of that. Um, and then next week I already have a plan. It's on my calendar that, that we're going to do chores because my kids have been sucking at their chores lately. So we're going to do the chores lesson. And so what I did is literally every Sunday morning, we turn off the Wi-Fi. I have a picture chart on the board um, or just on my fridge. And the first thing we do is everybody gets a book and we all read together and talk about what we're reading. Um, Then we do a lesson from Uplift and you encourage, you know, little rituals that you can do to, you know, some families light a candle or do this and that. And then we go on a nature walk and then we play with our kids and give them like really individualized attention. And yesterday, my oldest, we still call it church. And yesterday, my oldest said that was the best church ever. And it was like there was spirituality, there was nature, there was relationship, there was teaching, there was um a deep sense of responsibility for this kind of square of earth that my family's responsible for. And he just, and I can't remember ever coming home from church where you're fighting with the church clothes and all this kind of stuff. He never said like that was the best church ever, but he did for this Sunday morning that I've kind of crafted for my family and uplift has been a huge part of, of providing curriculum and structure to that program that I've now that's now just part of our routine. Every Sunday morning, we turn off the Wi-Fi and do that. So mm. just my huge recommendation for anyone listening, this is the best program that I've ever found for, for family spirituality. And I just really, I just can't be a bigger fan of you, John, and the work that you did. And I know it was a lot of research and a lot of thought and a lot of trial and error to get it to what it is, but it's, it's just such a beautiful program. Thank yeah. you. 
Uh, just a quick question. I, I, what is the cost to do this? So if, if there's a family out there that's listening right now, there's a mom or a dad listening and they want to bring this into their home. What does, what does it entail to, to get that done? Currently we just do an annual membership. So we're still figuring out that side of things out, but we just do an annual membership right now and it's 99 for a year and you get full access to the to everything in the lesson library. And then we continue to add stuff to the wisdom library. And we just like released a bunch of emotions cards. And so we're continuing to add, you know, week to week new things, but it's access to all the, all the past lessons and anything new that we create. So a little over $8 a month seems, that seems worth it to have, because again, if you're a young family and you're trying to raise your children and you're trying to instill good principles, one of the things that religion did that even like the public school classroom can't quite do is religion was able to pass along kind of that technology of these things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're really, we can all kind of try to do it individually, but there is a collective wisdom when you work together. Um, and, and I think that you're giving us something back that by leaving religion, we lost. And, and I, again, as Britt's saying, thank you. Yeah. So what's next for Uplift? What what things do you still like are missing that you want to flesh out? Um, how how does this continue to grow? What's next for Uplift? Well, there are a lot of things on our that we're exploring. One is physical products, and like I said, we just shipped out a, a first shipment of emotion cards, and so there are thirty six emotion cards to help kids like deal with various emotions and interplaying with various emotions, uh, games like charades where you act as an emotion, stuff like that. Uh, we have like a deck of conversation cards. Um, we're, we're not sure about physical products. We're not really sure if we want to head down that road. There was a lot of complications. Um, and so we might back off of that, but we're exploring it currently. Um, and then we're very interested in various forms of community. So we've talked about here how maybe the two or three hours on Sunday isn't quite the thing. And that's not really what we want to be invested in anyway at Uplift. Um, But maybe like a family retreat might be very interesting. And so one of our members, Michelle, she owns the Shoals Valley Lodge, which is where we did Spectra with Lower Lights and it's a beautiful property and uh, a retreat center. And so the possibility down the road, this wouldn't be this year, but maybe prototyping it next year would be what would it look like for several families to come together and retreat for a week. And we'd bring in therapists and uh, counselors and we'd have like facilitation and we would do activities together with multiple families for one week and you would try to work through the things that you're wrestling with as a family. And then we would have times where the kids could be with the kids, teens could be with the teens, family, the grownups could all chat together and come back as a big group, you know? Uh, so this is another thing that we're trying to explore is what, what are forms of community that might work and might be really exciting and transformative for um, members of Uplift. Um, in addition, we're we're really focused currently on the on the wisdom library. So we're trying to gather the best stories of the wisdom traditions and the best sayings of the wisdom traditions. And there would be two volumes. So one would be stories and one would be sayings. And then ideally, we would have like a very high quality 
book of each of those volumes that families could use to um, just have on hand and talk about these archetypal timeless stories uh, together. Um, all of it is, <laughs> it's daunting. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've, as soon as I finished when Mormons doubt, this is 2016. I'm like, my next book is, uh, a book on the wisdom traditions. And like, it's just so big and, uh, just like overwhelming. Uh, so the more you dive into it, the more it's like, Oh, this is, this is complex. Um, but it's there's another hundred pages, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So and, I mean, it's com things. it's complex because it's changing the world, right? I mean, to mm. to your to make this, you know, really. I mean, it could go as big as it could go, but it, it really is coming across as changing the world, right? You're changing something that's not present in society, and that's just really daunting. That's a lot. I'm really curious about how the teen or how the family retreats go, because something that our group, so we have, you know, a post Mormon group that um, is four years now and, and still, mm -hmm. still exploring spirituality together. So one of the more successful uh, groups and we're doing our first like teen EFY kind of experience oh, cool. where oh, the, good. we're going to do like a high adventure and go on a hike and wow. everyone in the community has some kind of message that they'll share with the teens as we wow. go. Um, and we've never done anything like that before. And we don't, there's no, like, you know, you know, this, there's no roadmap for doing something like that yeah. other than everyone just saying like, my teen needs this. Uh -huh. Right. And so we're going to start putting, putting that together and seeing how wow. that goes. So um, I'm really curious to see, especially for that teen age, because the, the, you know, we just, all the statistics shows us that they're just struggling and how do we get that to them? That, that's the problem that I'm most interested in because that, that's my um, certification was teaching that, you know, 16 mm -hmm. to 18 year old age group. And so I really want, when my kids are all in school, that would be the project that I would love to, to throw into. How do we figure out that teen piece? Mm -hmm. But I'm really curious to see how that, how that, how this expands and, and what lessons you learn along the way, because we're all just trying to figure it out. Yeah, I'm, I'd love to hear how it goes for you. And I really view all of this project as um, people well beyond the Uplift team all working together in their own ways, even including this conversation. Like it's, we're all um, helping emerge something that is emerging. And like, we don't know what it's going to look like or where it's going to go. Um, but I think if enough, enough people hold the intention, uh, we can create something that is what hum humanity really needs, whatever that, it, whatever that turns out to be. Yeah, man. If, if we could get people taking on these characteristics, you, you just little by little, you make the world a better place. And so good, good stuff. Thanks a lot, my friend. Yeah. Thank you. Anything else from you, Brett? I don't have anything else. I, I thought that that was really beautiful. I'm super inspired yeah. to just join Join in the cause, John, and just mm -hmm. uh, see where this things go. This thing goes in our lifetime. So, mm -hmm. yeah. just really appreciate you. We're big fans of what you're doing. If there's any way that we can be of help in the future to get word out about something or to point people in your direction, don't hesitate to let us know. All right. Cool. Thank have a nice. yeah. Have a great day, my friend, Britt. Right. Uh, a lot of fun as always. <laughs> Bye, guys. Take it easy, everybody. See ya.
This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.